0: Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. How was your
1: day? It was good. We finished off writing the script for tomorrow's recording. Excellent. Seems to be okay.
0: And Brad Pitt will be there or not? Oh, you mean Weatherman? Everyone keeps talking about... (laughs) I'm sorry, weatherman. I don't. Yes, there's no, there's no Brad Everyone Pitt. Everyone keeps in this assuming universe. that.
1: Yeah, I guess he looks kind of similar, but there is no weatherman in there's tomorrow's no weatherman episode. Okay. he's he's he was fired. He was fired
0: by Jim. Well, yeah, I know. I just didn't think if there. Was, I didn't know if there was going to be like a. Uh, no, he was fired. Once you're fired, once you're, you're gone. Fired, you're gone. It's true. You don't get to come back once you're fired. Everybody Those are the
1: rules it. of being fired. Does, yes. Do you know nothing about how I, the world of work
0: happens? Now that I look back on all the times I've been fired, yeah, I never went back. So I get to go back. You don't get to go back. Yeah.
1: Hey, this I guess this is the first we we've had like I think we've had like partners, a husbands and wife comedy duos, and yes. scientist duos. Yes, this is our first cross discipline. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Yeah, because um, a few months ago we had Steve Hall, very funny comedian, and old friend of mine from back in the uk on the show and he mentioned oh my wife has is a psychologist and has this really cool blog called cognitive behavior self and she does and she's great and we were chatting and we'd already become friends and then we were like hey when you're next in la do you fancy coming on the show and talking about that kind of stuff and so she has so welcome jane gregory thank you so so yeah this is you are i think you're also our first psychologist right um I it's believe been five so. Years,
0: I'm not totally Apologies. sure. Apologies.
1: Sure. Yeah. Apologies if not. So okay, let's let's definitely stop. your best psychologist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're Most definitely memorable. the best psychologist. So let's I don't know whether to start with psychology in general or cognitive behavioral. Well how, what was your entry into psychology? How does it work? Because you work in clinical psychology, right? You work in a hospital?
2: Yeah. So I work in outpatient community hospital setting, yeah. Um so not not people in hospital in patients, but people coming in for appointments so how just do- happens to be in a hospital
1: okay, right, so how do they do they get referred by a doctor or do they or can they just make an appointment with you how-
2: in I'm in a specialist clinic, so they do have to be referred by a doctor um, okay, but in the u k like there's a sort of the level below where I work, they can just refer themselves to that but the service that i mean is much more specialist so they kind of have to have been through a few different things first so what what is the field you're in so i i work in anxiety like i work for a specialist anxiety service and in particular with ocd obsessive compulsive disorder is the main area that i work in
1: so just starting with that because o- ocd is i think ocd very is,
0: it's very of the moment
1: well it's one of those it is one of those <laughs> Things that has a real definition in medicine, and also just gets used wrongly by people to mean, "Oh, I'm just a bit fastidious," like, "Oh, I'm I'm so OCD. I, whenever I take a shit, I flush. Like I'm such."
0: <laughs> yeah, I got I got called OCD by the doctor who was going to give me LASIK surgery because I was asking a lot of questions. I'm like, no, no, I'm just rigorous before you carve up my <laughs> eyeballs. Don't like assign some disorder to me. That's
2: Yeah, and it's the disorder part that makes it OCD. When people say, I'm so OCD, actually what they mean is, I'm so OC. Right. right. <laughs> yes. So,
1: okay, so what is the D part? What is it that makes... What, what does it take to, dif- to diagnose someone as being...
2: As a disorder. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, it's, it's basically the impact it has on your life. So, you could be doing lots of rituals and having lots of sort of obsessive or repetitive thoughts, but it not have any impact on living your life whatsoever. So, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't have a disorder if it wasn't actually affecting you. So, in order to be diagnosed as OCD, that has to have a significant effect on your life.
0: Diagnosed as OCD.
2: Mm-hmm. Diagnosed yeah. as OC. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. OC, yeah. Okay, that makes
1: complete sense. Because I, I, like, I, we've talked about Andy and I both...
2: Definitely
0: have uh, those tendencies. Well, yeah, <laughs> and bo-
1: both had s- weirdly similar ones as well, like having to count things in specific patterns and it happened to be the same pattern. And,
2: mm-hmm. and yeah, like, and lots of people have little rituals and things that yeah. help them just feel calm or safe or just sort of give you a momentary bit of relief from something. Like, that's actually a pretty normal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and really OCD is just an extension of that
0: so who's to define when it becomes problematic it's just whenever someone decides my life is being impacted negatively
2: yeah I mean it's it's the patient sort of has to want to want help want yeah, things yeah. to be different um and it, yeah it's usually just that it stops them from um going to their job or it takes them a long time to get to their job or they don't get to do anything in their life because they're spending so much time doing rituals or everything that they do causes them a lot of distress or makes them really anxious then um that's you know probably the time they'd come for help okay
1: so just dining back a bit you you ended up specializing in this anxiety and ocd field yeah but presumably, before that, you have to qualify in psychology, and then cl- how does it work? Like, what's even the path through?
2: Yeah, so in, in well, I trained in Australia, so it starts with a sort of three-year undergraduate degree, and then kind of a fourth year, like an honours year, to um, prepare you for postgraduate uh-huh. training, and then it's a four-year doctorate in clinical psychology after that I worked for a couple of years in between to got a bit of experience in between but some people in Australia at least go straight through and just do eight years in a row of training
0: and how much of that training is with patients and how much is is just sort of academic or
2: so the five the second four years is you're seeing patients throughout that four years so you're doing placements and seeing people in a clinic in the university and um, yeah then a final internship out in a Proper setting,
1: and then how do you end up specialising in your field?
2: I just kind of ended up there. I was working in primary care, which is much more general and sort of more general anxiety and depression. Uh And I was there for six years, and um, just found myself gravitating towards anxiety as a problem. And (laughs) so fun, uh, yeah. It well. It sounds awful to say, but it is way more fun than treating depression. Oh, I <laughs> like guess. It's, yeah. You're sort of solving a problem with the patient and they really want to get better and they're really motivated and interested to do it. Depression is really hard work because one of the symptoms of depression is low motivation. So that includes coming to therapy and doing things that the therapist asks them to. So anxiety just, I'm, I am guess, pretty upbeat and it is actually a natural fit for me because people actually come in Energized and ready to try things. Yeah.
1: That's really interesting. Of course. Yeah. Like it's that depression is almost like self defeating in its way. Like
2: the symptom is also the cause. Yeah. And treatment is far less successful for depression than it is for anxiety.
0: As in all of this being non um, pharmaceutical intervention, like all, or you, like no.
2: Yeah. So I, I mean, a lot of people have pharmaceutical intervention alongside therapy but i just do the the therapy side yeah. of it yeah
1: so when you you normally it's psychiatrists who end up prescribing the medication right that's
2: right yeah and they have so they have a medical degree first and right. specialize in psychiatry so they would prescribe medication
1: so in those situations do psychiatrists and psychologists tend to work hand in hand with a patient if it's particularly hard or if they need to have medical intervention
2: yeah absolutely yeah if it, if it needs both they'd be working together
1: so like yep. do you feel like it's If you're you're in those situations, do you feel like it's teamwork with you and the psychiatrist, or or is it like a little professional clash?
2: Uh, The psychiatrist that I work with, it's definitely teamwork. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's clashes out there.
1: They're like... And then you also work in partnership with a Scientologist as well, who thinks that there's no <laughs> need for any of this.
2: <laughs> just comes in on Tuesdays, yeah. Sets everyone straight.
1: So three different fields. Like you always have, like the ps- psychologist who works on like therapy, and then the psychiatrist who does medication. The Scientologist who does their methods and thinks the other two are hoaxes. And then just a journalist who tells you to buck up and you know t- tells the patients a journalist
0: just, or a parent, yeah, yeah, just. <laughs> Snap out of it. Snap, guess. Snap out of it. Yeah. Was that the first year of college? You just teach people to just <laughs> snap, yeah. snap, yeah. out, of snap out of it. Come on, buckaroo. Lesson yeah. One. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, okay. So, so let's. I, I want to talk mostly because this is your area of speciality. You talk about uh, is cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. So, what is that? Let's start. <laughs> we well, like, we're idiots. So let's start from step one.
2: All right. So, given that you're idiots, yeah. let's. But basically, the simplest analogy I can think of is if you'd eaten some really bad chicken and got food poisoning, mm-hmm. have either of you had significant food poisoning in your life?
1: I have definitely had it at least once.
2: Yeah. So what happened the next time you ate the food?
1: Uh,
2: I the remember
1: not wanting to go near cottage cheese for quite a while. Oh,
0: God. Cottage <laughs>
1: oh. cheese. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, even cottage cheese without that right. life experience <laughs> I've never liked definitely... it just because
0: of what it looks like when it's not the stuff that's going to destroy your insides <laughs> so you just I should guess. have
2: stayed away from cottage cheese to begin yeah.
0: with yeah
1: see this is I, this might well be also this might be an entirely false memory uh, and if you have any experience or knowledge in the world of false memories I, I'd love to talk about that with you as well because we've talked about this on the show before but I have some weird memory of making I, making cottage cheese at school as an experiment <laughs>
0: That sounds like something. I mean, when we were some kids, variant of making cheese making. Cheese.
1: Yeah, like learning as like a well, like a, sort mace, of,
0: a mason jar and cheesecloth. Yeah, over in like, and, like
1: science class in sci- whatever, like science in quotes because we were, yeah, eight or whatever it was. Uh, that, sounds sci- like, that sounds that like sounds a thing like that's done. Yeah. Yeah. and I remember, I remember that, and then I remember being very ill. And it might have been from the cheese, or my body or my brain might have just conflated those two things at some point year like some point after the fact both whatever
2: significant cottage cheese memories
1: whatever it was yeah, in my head there was there were two different memories that may have been from the same occasion or may have been separate, but then retros, retroactively joined together <laughs> in my head, but it involved cottage cheese creation and testing <laughs> in a primary school science class and then being very sick.
2: At some point, getting sick of cottage cheese. Yeah. Possibly the same cottage cheese, possibly not.
1: Possibly not, I don't know. Or possibly not even cottage cheese at all. I might have just had a stomach bug. It was entirely unrelated. But in some point in my weird childhood memory, those two things got connected. connected.
0: I'm always impressed when people know right away what gave them the food poisoning. Because by the time you get it, I'm like, well, an entire day has gone by. I don't know which of the things I ate yesterday was... You know, you just end up blaming one. It's like spider bites. There's mm-hmm. So many skin conditions are just, like, blamed on spiders that you never saw.
2: Yeah. Than, like, and, like, actual
0: spider experts. Are perfect
2: all. segue into the next part of the analogy. <laughs> yeah. Is that exactly that. You don't always know what what's caused it, but you might have an aversion to a particular thing from that day or multiple things from that day in the future. The next time you try and have it, right. you get... Not not just, oh, I don't think I want to eat cottage cheese anymore, but you get a physical response to the idea of cottage cheese the right. next time you go to eat it. And that functions in the same way as anxiety, that if something happens that is in some way threatening or harmful or was potentially threatening or harmful, then the next time you interact with that thing, you'll get a, a response in the body that tells you you're in danger.
1: Okay. So, mo- so lo- anxiety... Anxiety is a sort of is often just a false connection, or at least uh, a neg- some kind of negative reinforcement, a connection in your brain to a situation that you might be in now, uh, to a previous negative situation in your memory.
2: Yeah, and probably a previous situation that was actually threatening, or that you at least believed it was threatening at the time. Right. Um, and the reason I get sort of connected with the food poisoning idea is that it doesn't matter how much you say. I know that there's nothing wrong with this cottage cheese. I can see it's f- fresh or whatever. Your body's telling me something different.
1: Yeah, this is from the supermarket. It wasn't made by a child. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it wasn't made by eight-year-olds. <laughs> and yet your body tells you, don't eat that. It's, it is it is potentially poisonous. Right. And so the same thing happens with emotions, that your body sort of stores these memories of stuff that happens, and it doesn't matter how much you logically say, I could go to this place, party and see people that i know and everything will go fine and i'll have nice conversations but if you've had really bad experiences with people growing up or you've been picked on or bullied or something like that then what your body is going to be telling you going into that situation is you're in danger here you're under some kind of social threat okay so cognitive behavior therapy is basically pinpointing those problems working out where the discrepancies are and which things you can what, what patterns you're sort of stuck in what you're doing to cope with it and then trying to change that.
1: So how often, if, if a patient of yours has anxiety, say, mm-hmm. how often after therapy or, at, or within therapy are you able to pinpoint the sort of trigger for that anxiety or... Or the original cause of that anxiety?
2: Some people come in knowing exactly what it is. They sort of come in and say, this happened, and ever since then I've had a problem, or that this was at least a, a thing that kind of set me off. Right. I've, I might have always been anxious, but then I had to give this presentation at uni, and I forgot what I was meant to say, and I had a panic attack and ran right. out of the room, and it was humiliating.
1: Or I was in a school, like I was a, went to a party when I was seven, and suddenly loads of people crowded into the room, and I got crowded in. Or
2: Yeah, or I had a group of friends, and one of the girls turned all the other girls against me and since then I've had a fear that people are going to reject me or something like that so some people know when it started other people it doesn't matter you just work with what's happening now and other people you sort of work with what's happening now and kind of work backwards and particularly I like to work with emotions in particular so when someone's actually feeling a particular emotion just saying okay now just take some time to think about an earlier time when you felt that way are there any significant memories of feeling that way mm-hmm. and because memories the memories that we store the strongest are the ones that are connected to emotions so through okay. the emotion you can find the memory i
1: guess that yeah i hadn't thought about that but like i'm sure i can remember feeling certain ways stronger than i can remember specifics of anyone's names faces locations
2: yeah yep and it's it's the same effect that you get even just watching a film like the films that you remember the most are the ones that you felt something you might right. not remember the plot or any particular dialogue but you remember how you felt watching it yeah and that's basically how memories are stored because emotions are there to tell us something about how the world functions and what's safe and not safe
0: right right so that's why we all remember human centipede so well right you know where you were the first time yes that's obviously. the reason yeah. why you all remember it yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just remember how happy it made me.
2: <laughs> just that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's just, yeah, <laughs> just
1: like pure, the purest joy. Mm-hmm. The purest, like, Christmas birthdays
0: revisit it every every day before I go to sleep, always. Um, you do. Speaking of that kind of stuff, though, do you have any kind of is any element of the therapy involving forcing people to confront a version of uh, that thing that happened again? Or what's the term for that kind of therapy?
2: Yeah, so if like the, the main time that gets used is for specifically for trauma, so for post-traumatic stress disorder, so mm-hmm. um, it's basically called reliving and with that specifically the treatment is going back to the time of the Trauma and talking through it, and mm-hmm. sort of um, basically, PTSD is sort of a more of a memory disorder, like it gets stored incorrectly in your brain. And your brain, when you think about it, it feels like you're still back in that moment and unsafe. And so, it's basically trying to sort of take that memory out and um, tidy it up and put it back in okay. in a way that you remember it as a memory, not you remember it as if you're experiencing it right now. Mm-hmm. That's
1: interesting. I think we did, we had a story about this a while ago that involved that we just covered on the on the normal show about it was using virtual reality technology to take soldiers specifically who'd been through traumatic situations who had versions Mm -hmm. of ptsd and and at first it sounded like the worst thing to do because it was basically putting them back in a battlefield in what should be their scariest situation but it was for exactly that reason it was like it was sort of explaining it as that exactly like you did of this disconnect this wrongly written memory and also yeah. just something that's come up on the show a few times about how when we remember something each time we remember it we're actually rewriting it in our brain so we're remembering the previous time we remembered it rather than yeah we're not
2: remembering the original yeah so
1: the more times you can talk it through and the more times you can rewrite it in a more pleasant or is the wrong word but less traumatic way
2: yeah absolutely and when when you've been through a traumatic event the for the first month or so, it's really normal to have flashbacks and kind of experiences where you think you're sort of back there in the moment. Right. And when that's happening as a normal part of processing a trauma, that's actually helping you to store the memory as a memory and to be teach yourself that the memory itself isn't a threat to you uh-huh. and to remember parts of it in a place where you feel safe so that you start to connect the memory with being in a safe area instead of being back in that moment. So. Mm-hmm flashbacks and stuff for the for the first few weeks at least after a trauma is actually pretty normal it's only after a month or so if it keeps going and people are still feeling the same emotions that they felt at the time of whatever the trauma was that's when it becomes ptsd and that's when you'd be getting treatment
1: oh so okay so if so flashbacks beyond a certain point uh like flashbacks beyond a certain cutoff point is when okay now there's there's a disorder that's beyond grief. Yeah.
2: yeah. And and anything after about a month and if there's still sort of occasional flashbacks but they're getting fewer and further between and they're less distressing each time you probably wouldn't make them go back to the original trauma that would just be re-traumatizing them. Right, right. But if they're not getting any better after a month or two months then they're probably not going to get any better without some kind of help.
1: Okay. So so just um Well, because, again, presumably uh, from an evolutionary point of view, something traumatic should stay with you because that would help you survive. Because back in the day, from an evolutionary point of view, something traumatic is like, oh, a big animal nearly killed me. So be aware of the warning signs that this is a sign that a big animal is about to kill you.
2: And not even just like in the past but now like if you step out into the road and nearly get hit by a car you want to remember that feeling so that you look before you cross the road next time right like that all of that is still really useful information it's not like a, an outdated process it's right, just we right, don't right. need it as often as we used to need it right yeah.
1: so when it, but it's when it crosses over from that hey lock this away as a as a thing to be wary of into just this dominates your life
2: yeah and so you're actually reliving the trauma on a daily basis. That's when it's a problem, yeah.
1: So, so we we interrupt you. So you got you got someone who has anxiety, and you've started to identify the cause of the
2: yes anxiety.
1: So what happens next? Yeah,
2: yeah. So part of the, uh, I mean, part of identifying the cause is really just to sort of help people to realise where it came from. It's kind of a de-shaming thing, like to make them realise that actually this hasn't come from nowhere. That stuff happened. The new interpreted in a certain way at the time whether it was correct or not if you're a kid and someone's picking on you you might believe that you're never going to make friends ever again and that would be a fairly understandable explanation for a kid Uh um so it started at a in a reasonable way and whatever you did at the time to cope with it is all you had whatever tools you had to manage it at the time is all you had at the time right it's just that as an adult You know, there are lots of ways to make friends. It doesn't matter if a few people in the class don't like you or even the whole class doesn't like you because you can just change jobs or move suburbs or whatever. The class
0: isn't your world anymore.
2: Yeah, but the body doesn't remember it that way.
0: And with changing underwear styles, like wedgies become harder to do to adults. That's definitely true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> also, one of the
2: key I, developments yeah, in yeah. underwear design.
1: <laughs> I would even go so far as to say that also adults probably attempt wedgies far less frequently than kids.
0: Yeah, because they know how the, the the differences in mass and the differences in underwear technology yeah, that make probably, it yeah. more difficult to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you can't get someone off the ground in a wedgie, I mean, it's way less satisfying. Would,
1: I don't think wedgies. Wedgies were something we knew about as a kid. But I don't think we ever did them.
0: I think I've gotten one but I don't think it was um I mean I was definitely like picked on and stuff but I don't think I ever got one in anything but a friendly way like from an actual friend But I think yeah, sure. I think
1: also wedgies are one of those things that like they're quite hard to get started like there needs to be oh, a Oh
0: no. You think <laughs> you can really are. sneak you just up behind someone and just hard <laughs> Yeah. I mean I guess maybe it's because like kids of a certain age you're not usually wearing belts or so I don't know it's like yeah, kids are—I don't know—boys. Boys, boys some... don't have like shapely hips that are keeping their <laughs> pants up. So i am like, I guess if there is an underwear band that's visible and accessible. yeah, there's always then. an underwear band. Vis- I feel like it's
2: an it, opportunistic I, crime. <laughs> yeah, maybe
0: it was only—it only seemed easy because it only happened when when it was there for the it was like presenting itself. Yeah, <laughs> the I, I band. guess that I'm is. I'm not true. saying I've never done it. I—I I don't think I've. Let me amend that. I don't think I've ever done it. I've definitely received one or two. I can't remember who they were from, but they're not... The fact that I can't remember must either mean it wasn't traumatic or it's so traumatic that I have to block out <laughs> who did it
1: to me. I don't know. Do you, do you wince every time someone even mentions the concept?
0: <laughs> well, I, know, I have gone back to owning some briefs. So I must have gotten over whatever...
2: You're eating cottage cheese again. I'm
0: eating cottage cheese again. I am
2: eating
1: cottage Yes. i, I, I can not think of any other food that's scared, but also... But tequila's still...
2: Yeah, probably for the same reason. Well, I yeah. for yeah. the same reason. Yeah, we were
1: making it at school. I mean,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> As an eight-year-old. It's one of those classic experiments. Right,
1: right. <laughs> yeah, we have some very irresponsible teachers. <laughs> just <laughs> Set some kids to start running a distillery.
0: We had a button factory in my sixth grade class. Ever tell you about that? <laughs> Is this true? It was a for-profit business. And <laughs> what?
1: Yeah. The oh, teacher... Wait, wait, buttons in the American like sense, meaning like a badge. Like a... Wait, what, what would you call a button? Well, I, I, I would call... I would... What, Brits, what's Brits and word? I think Australians as well only use buttons to mean the things in shirts
0: or oh, okay. things that even hold up badge, shirts or jeans or badge whatever. Badge making. The, the button factory which made badges. Uh, yeah a ba- like a pin badge like yeah. a pin uh, button or whatever. King Elementary. Mr. Puddock had a and it was sort of like a thing that kids aspired to be in even though it was unpaid I mean it was like shop labor <laughs> And you'd say after school wasn't part of school. Like you would do free work to learn how to get, go to the button making machine, like how to cut the circles well and line so it up well. what were
1: these? What, what were these things advertising or representing?
0: Like unlicensed stuff, like University of Michigan football. That was one of the years they went to the Rose Bowl, so we made Rose Bowl buttons and sold, sold those at games. I don't know where the money went. I <laughs> hope it went to the school because I think they're like a dollar a button, and it's all profit because like, free.
2: <laughs> I think that someone is still doing that because we were at a music festival this weekend and. There was a kids area and the kids were making buttons and we did see a little kid, about eight or nine, out the front trying to sell his free buttons that he'd made in the kids space (laughs) at the festival. He was trying to sell them at the festival.
0: That's a resourceful (laughs) kid.
2: I
1: I was never... Were you an
2: entrepreneurial
0: kid? Because
1: there there was always like a few kids in my school who always had schemes going and I was always so in awe of them.
0: Yeah, I try. One time we would. I lived across the street from this church when I was in first or third grade, and there was a giant parking lot. And so we would take this. Uh, it was like a foam. It was the size of of like of this stool. It was a, it was the size of like a big ass loaf of bread. I'm bad with sizes. Uh, there's this foam thing on four wheels, and uh, we would have kids sit on that, and then give them a rope, which I would attach to the back of my bike. And sell them 10 cent rides on the thing. (laughs) I would bike really fast. And they would be on this tiny thing that's super unstable. And if it wobbles at all, you fall over. But 10 cent
1: rides. I would have maybe thought to do it, but I never would have thought to charge for it.
0: I mean, I don't don't know why 10 cents, even back then, was nothing. I don't know why we even thought to charge 10 cents. 10 cents used to get you a lot. I don't even think it was a gumball, was it back then? I don't know I don't how know. far back are we talking. It doesn't matter how far <laughs> back we're. T- <laughs> Let's just say. Because my
2: was... friend and I, we, we at the school fate, we used to sell jelly. Like we'd have like Jello cups uh, for, for like twenty cents or something. And,
1: and that how, how, would you be... make? Would you make this, or would you just? Yeah, buy so we them?
2: would make the make the jelly and like bring it from home. Okay. And just sell it at our stall. I think our parents probably paid for the jelly crystals (laughs) so it's just pure pure, pure, profit for the
1: kids (laughs) and they're like subsidizing your entrepreneurship yeah Yeah, like i just like i remember one one kid it was it was on a school trip and it was like snowing outside so he just bought these juice boxes and like the place we were staying in was selling them for i'm good let's say like the equivalent of 20 cents yeah and then he was, was just, like, chucking them outside in the snow and then selling them as, like, popsicles. It's <laughs> pretty smart. At a, at a 300% markup. That's pretty smart, yeah. And again I, again, I would have I would have thought to freeze the popsicles. I never would have thought... I never would have had the chutzpah to sell it at a profit.
2: So you're the Mark Zuckerberg of popsicle making. Yeah, I just want to
1: give a product out for free. Yeah. I just want to put it out into the world and... Make no other he's 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 quite rich now uh, he's yeah, really laid up he's doing it right now he's he started
2: months. not caring
1: <laughs> I think he was doing it to get laid <laughs> wasn't that the story if if the movie's to be believed was it really well he was well, that part it of it? wasn't part of it if the the certainly in the dramatized version and probably in the real version he wanted to know if he wanted to know if a girl was single, so he added a like relationship status. Oh, okay, okay.
0: I mean, I guess, yeah, everybody did call... Did you have something like uh, a Facebook at your college as in like a a book that had the... a physical book that had the incoming classes pictures? No. A freshman Facebook... I forgot what they actually called it. I think they might have called it just a freshman Facebook, but then everyone in school called it the fuck finder pre social media days. But the, yeah, this printed thing that everyone would just, you know, send their high school senior year headshot to the college and they'd print out this thing. And I don't know, the, oh, I don't know what the college too. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know what the college was thinking. They were, what, I, don't, I don't know what the non fuck finder use case for this thing is. What they what they're saying it's we, for? We didn't to get ha- to know your classmates before you see them in person. Or wh- we didn't have a high school yearbook, so there was no like high school yearbook oh. photos. I and mean, we didn't have senior
2: portraits either. That what wasn't a
0: thing? No. Is that no Commonwealth countries have? If you had a school photo, we had school. Even yeah, a school photo day,
1: day, but it wasn't like because I and that but that was mostly that wasn't for like a book that everyone would sign. That was just like. So that every couple of years, a photographer would come into school and take photographs, and then my parents would have to pay too much money. And that's right, right. like, yeah, we never got, got the individual the
2: photo. We were allowed to get the class photo, but oh, was...
0: okay,
1: we had that as well. We had like at the beginning of university, Everyone we had gets... like the matriculation photo, but oh, that was okay. the whole college, or, like the whole year of the whole college. It was like 150 people, and then names underneath.
0: Yeah, I can't remember what the college situation yearbook-wise was. I mean. Maybe there was just one with seniors only. It wasn't a big, but in high school, it's definitely like a huge American tradition. No, but we had to find our fucks.
1: Like we had to find our fucks. <laughs> the old-fashioned <laughs> way. <laughs>
2: well, at my university, on the the first day, they had at like at my halls of residence, you you, you were given a buddy, and so the buddy had your picture, mm-hmm. and they had to come and find you from the picture. Was that a buddy in your year? <laughs> no, from the year above. Okay, like who had been there for a year and yeah knew the ropes. But my you never came and found me.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> but you <didn't laughs> to have this stage, th- you know, I've <laughs> still got no idea. It's a one-way picture. Or you also have their picture. You both no, have each no. Other's they, pictures? they
2: only they had my they picture. Your,
1: oh, yeah. Wow. Someone out there was spent the whole year going. I'm, I'm her buddy, and she, she doesn't even know, know it.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. Anything got done pre, pre, like whatever this version of the internet is. You know, as far as like you know, when I was in college. A few people had cell phones, but that was the exception. So you still yeah, managed to meet up with one. people, and um... yeah,
1: I didn't get a I didn't get a phone till my final year of university, and that was only because I started doing stand up, and I had a couple too many mishaps with my mum. Like I had to give like my parents' oh. landline numbers, my only contact for gigs.
0: <laughs> so your mum taking details? of Yeah, gigs. exactly.
1: It was like I was like, that's not like.
0: Yeah, I think I actually I would just read an article today about how like, I don't want to say how old I am, but who fucking cares about how I, I think we're both part of this micro generation that they're calling something between Gen X and Millennial, where we had like an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. Like social right. media came about in our 20s. I um, think
2: you can tell by the way someone uses their phone. I reckon if someone uses their phone just with like one thumb and types it, they used to have a pho- an analog phone. Oh, They're used to doing it with one finger Well,
1: there, there, is, there are stats on The younger generation Like I'll still, I'll press a doorbell With my index finger But my younger sister Who's 10 years younger than me Will press it using her thumb And it's because the thumb has overtaken The, the <laughs> like index finger Like it's being print, print main... recognised or
2: something But, yeah. but it's, like the, it's yeah. the main
1: pushing finger now Like you push with your thumb Whereas I push with my
0: index finger
2: yeah, I would do it with my index finger. I can't even imagine pushing a it doorbell. It seems like you're
0: approving of a door or something. Yeah. <laughs> Good job.
1: But no, it is. I, don't, I think, I think it, well, I don't know. Maybe let us know, listeners. I want to know how accurate this is. Like I, I, my guess is people below the age of th- like 30 and below are more likely to press a doorbell with their thumb.
0: I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. Maybe
1: Maybe late 20s and below. And I'm mm. pretty sure most people of my generation and above would use an index finger.
0: People under 10 are more likely to walk up to a TV and try to push it or swipe it in a certain direction. Yeah,
1: that is funny when you see, have you ever, like, when you see a toddler who's so young, they've just grown up with iPads as normal and they just try and swipe a still photograph.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
0: just like that. I just seen on a TV, like, trying to do stuff to a TV. It's like, not everything is interactive. Sorry, kid. (laughs) It will be in like two years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right now, you have to get what picture you're given.
0: Although, I, that, that's going to happen, but then it's just going to be... You're going to have the most smudged TV of all time once that's Oh, and a then thing, you're going right? to
2: have to go back to actually going up to the TV to do anything well, to no, it. Well, no, I think it'll be, yeah. it'll
1: be gestures from a distance. It probably will. You're right. Like yeah. the way it works with... the uh, Connect or... Yeah, expects, or you just sort of uh, pointed it like that. just have a little... Uh, yeah. it be minority report. <laughs> anyway, so we've oh, got, yeah. we... we, we forgot we, were, Okay, we, How did we get on this tangent? <laughs> wedgies. Anxiety. Yes. Anxiety. Wedgies. All right.
2: Wedgie anxiety. Yeah, so it's probably like the past stuff the sort of triggers is probably less important than what's actually keeping it going now and so the things that i'm looking for when i'm actually working with the patient is like what are the key things that get them emotional while they're talking about it and those are sort of the the beliefs or assumptions they have about the world that really push their buttons Uh um so that's one key part of it and then what are they doing when they're feeling bad that is not helping that it is helping them for a few seconds and that's about it so the things that are sort of like temporary solutions <clears throat> that actually keep the problem going
1: uh, so what kind of solutions would they be if uh, we just bring in a real world example like say it is someone who let's say because their childhood or, or whatever has anxiety in social situations what are the temporary solutions that they take that keep that perpetuate it
2: so in social situations so some pretty common ones are rehearsing what you're going to say before you actually say it out loud Uh uh-huh. um depending on what you're worried people are, and this is where it comes into what um their beliefs are what they believe people are noticing about them so if you notice like so like me i go really red when i get nervous or any emotion basically so the sort of thing that i used to do before i decided I didn't care anymore was wear shirts really high up to try and cover the signs that I might be nervous so that people couldn't tell that I was nervous when I was doing something right um so anything that sort of hides anxiety or hides nervousness that's pretty common for social anxiety um preparing topics in advance not making eye contact in case they can sort of tell something about how you're feeling based on the eye contact. See,
1: preparing topics in advance is an interesting one because that is advice that people try and give people for, oh, I'm not good in social situations. like, well, here's a list of talking points.
2: Yeah. And if, if what you're needing is social skills training, then maybe that is good advice. I don't know. But if what you have is actually social anxiety, then the problem isn't a lack of social skills. It's that you believe that people are judging you in a way that they're probably not and you believe that your anxiety or nerves are way more obvious than they actually are right so what you then need is techniques to deal with your anxiety not social training you need more belief in your social skills as they are
0: that makes sense and when you have those people also paired up with psychiatrists what are the sort of uh typical medicines that go along with the therapy that you're doing or are there not there's
2: not for anxiety in general there's not a lot that helps some mainly just some temporary stuff that might help people to calm down like if if you're going to take a flight or something you might take a um, valium or something like that but there's not much that helps in any (laughs) long-term sense Uh for OCD uh, a lot of people are prescribed antidepressants SSRIs and there's some evidence that that helps a bit but they still need the the therapy alongside that
0: because otherwise, if you difference. just stop the medicine, it would it just all just stops, be right yeah. there again. Yeah.
1: Um, so rather than just trying to deal, treat the symptoms rather than the cause, which seems like what, like the wearing the shirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what what would you actually do then? What would actually help them learn how to navigate the situation or or learn how to reduce the anxiety?
2: So for for social anxiety, it's a pretty um, like f- formulaized treatment plan for that. So the first thing is sort of getting them to find out how they actually look in social situations because most people are really preoccupied with looking nervous or looking foolish or something uh-huh. so doing things like so it might start in the session getting them to have a conversation and record them having a conversation and get them to say now how nervous did you think you looked in this situation or get them to drink a cup of water and say how much do you think you were shaking when you drank that water get them to rate it out of 10 and then get them to watch the video back and see if they have the same rating when they're watching it back compared to what it felt like, they uh-huh. looked like. Because that's the that's the key thing with social anxiety is like really sort of trusting your internal experience as being reflective of what everyone else can see. And actually, we mostly feel anxiety inside our own bodies, and people can't see what we're feeling most of the time. Right. So just kind of correcting that misperception of what other people can see what if it actually disgusting.
1: is true what if they do look nervous as hell or <laughs> shaky as hell because I mean, that must happen sometimes yeah right? and
2: it's it's an experiment so yeah sometimes that does happen and that's useful information as well because then you know what you're working with so instead right. of working with this unknown quantity of i think i look terrible it's like, okay yeah you do well, you do look terrible <laughs> <laughs> now let's work with that but then then saying okay so then so that it's how you th- Checking whether how you think you look is actually matched with what other people can see Uh and then looking at what you think other people are thinking of you in that situation and seeing if you can find out ways of finding out if that's accurate or realistic. Right. Um, And part of it is just observing other people, see what other people do in social situations. So particularly social anxiety, people might be worried that, they can't pause like that it would look they'll look stupid or look like they don't know what they're talking about if they pause for too long and so then you might get them to next time they're at some kind of social thing get them to watch other people and see what happens when there are pauses in the conversation see whether it picks up again see watch the natural sort of ebb and flow of conversation just get a sense of what how the rest of the world
1: see that's an interesting thing as a stand-up because particularly when you're new but even with experience with a gig's tricky the thing you really have to tell yourself is slow the fuck down. And that's one Mm -hmm. of the first bits of advice that I remember getting as a comic, which is just however slowly you think you're talking, talk slower. Mm -hmm. Because when you listen to yourself back, even listening... I talk quickly anyway, but on stage, there's a real tendency to speed up because you're like, if I don't get the next joke out really quickly and get as many out as quickly as possible, then I'm going to lose them and then I'm going to be laugh. uh, It'll go badly. Yeah. It's a similar
2: process in therapy. Right. Like when you're learning to be a therapist, the instinct is to fill the silence. It's like, I've got to say something to let them know that I've heard what they've said. But actually a lot of the time it's silent because people are thinking about what you've said or processing or just sort of letting their mind wander a little bit in a really helpful way.
1: Uh So... just yeah. have to
2: learn to slow slow down. And I've, I've had really, really long silences that in normal social situations would be massively awkward, but in a therapy situation, then suddenly someone says something, oh, well, thank God, it actually paid off that I waited to see what was happening.
1: While, while it was ticking around in their head.
2: Yeah, and it's about learning to read the cues as well. Like if someone's looking directly at you, then they're probably not thinking about something important. They're waiting for you to say something, but if they're looking away or looking like they're concentrating or looking like they're experiencing some kind of strong emotion, then it's probably worth just waiting to see what happens. Interesting.
1: Um, so, so the next step, so you sort of might film, film them or get them to think and work out the disparity or the discrepancy between how they internally feel and how they externally appear. Yeah. But once someone knows that, once someone has or okay, okay, you're right, I I feel seven out of ten nervous and uncomfortable and I actually look four out of ten. Yeah. What's the next step?
2: So then it's about checking all those little behaviors that we talked about. So working things out in your head in advance or avoiding eye contact then it's about checking whether they're actually helping you or whether they're making things worse so particularly like planning things out in your head what a lot of people realize is that with a bit of sort of attention training if they start paying attention to what the other person's saying instead of what they're going to say next the answer comes a lot more naturally because they've actually heard what the other person's saying they're not busy thinking in their own head about what they're going to say
0: Next. so you're like half improv coach half uh therapist at that yeah point. that's exactly my job yeah. <laughs> no but that is like that's a part of what you should be doing paying in, attention. In good improv. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: and I, f- I think focused training is a really really important part of cbt like just teaching people to be paying attention to one thing at a time and to bring their attention back to something that they were paying attention to like that a lot of people with anxiety their minds are pretty chaotic and easily distracted and actually just training them to bring it back to one thing at a time is really important and people are missing a lot just by going off on whatever their mind is sort of thrown at them in the moment they start thinking about that like everything feels important.
1: That's something my brain definitely does a lot, (laughs) like all the time. It's a pretty (laughs)
2: common trait for people in creative fields in particular. And so in in creative fields, it's really useful because what your brain is doing is just mashing weird things together and that's how interesting ideas come, that's how interesting jokes and observations happen because you're letting your mind do that. But if you can't then contain it to actually write things down or... Um, have a conversation with somebody or get to the gig, uh-huh. then you have a problem.
1: Right. Yeah. There's definitely times where someone will be having a conversation with me and then realize I'm just staring at a thing on the wall. Yeah. Like, that's a thing I do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, are, are or are yawning at somebody very visibly. That was, yeah. That was. Was that the was Russell that,
1: Howard episode I can't where we talked about that? Was it, was it a recent
0: thing you did or was, you told the story recently? No, it was, it a, it was, it was, it was a while ago. Oh, was ago.
2: it a memory or a memory of a memory? Yeah.
1: It was a memory of a memory, now, by now. <laughs> but I hadn't thought of that for a while, but that was definitely something I did.
0: It was, that's awesome. Just because yeah,
2: my, my brain was somewhere else. And Even. that that just that's a really normal thing for our brains to do. So actually, it, it's that's okay for that to happen. And if you recognize that it's happened and come back to the conversation and say, oh, you know i drifted off then there's no problem people might be a bit annoyed but it's not a big deal but if you then are thinking oh god i drift i've missed what they've said what am i gonna what am i gonna do next I, it, it's gonna be really awkward it's gonna look like they think that i'm uh, it's gonna look like i think that they're boring so i can't admit that i wasn't listening
0: uh-huh. so
2: someone with anxiety would be going through that kind of conversation in their own head and thinking about how that makes them look that they've done that rather than just saying oh, i've done that okay now what do i need to do next to? get the outcome which, that I want which is to have a nice conversation with somebody
1: right so anxiety how closely connected are anxiety and OCD are they sort of
2: so, and to, sister disorders yeah so OCD is sort of traditionally considered an anxiety disorder in the most recent uh, DSM-5 it's now it's own category of obsessive and compulsive disorders So, it's sort of recognising that it's not just An anxiety problem, and particularly with OCD, a lot of the people really severe OCD who do lots of washing and um, cleaning rituals, sometimes the emotion isn't even anxiety, it's actually a feeling of disgust or um, just feeling dirty. And so, that then they wouldn't identify themselves as having an anxiety problem Mm -hmm. because it doesn't actually match their experience.
1: Okay, so Mm. how do you go about treating someone who has? Is that is it a similar process to go about treating someone who has OCD?
2: Yeah, in a sense. The, OCD, the the particular part of the OCD treatment that makes a difference is what's called exposure and response prevention, which is basically making them do things that make them feel uncomfortable and not doing their normal ritual or compulsive behaviour. Is
1: that similar to how you treat phobias?
2: Yes. Yeah. So the, the key difference being that... Uh, people with OCD have some kind of ritual that brings them relief from that feeling. People with phobias just tend to leave the situation or avoid it completely. So for them, it's just, for phobias, just, they have to do it. Right. And so you sort of experience bring... it and learn that, that, that it's not as dangerous as they think it, not as dangerous as it feels like it is. So logically people with phobias know that it's irrational. They're not delusional with mm-hmm. their fear, but just training the body to realize that you're not actually in danger anymore so
1: how does it work with phobias of things like i'm not great with heights Mm -hmm. but heights are some heights are genuinely dangerous like if you fall off a bridge
2: yeah so again it comes back to like the the disorder part of it being the impact that it has on your life and to diagnose a phobia it has to be excessive and like irrational fear so a fear of heights that stops you from like Standing on the railing of a bridge is a reasonable fear of heights, but a fear of heights that stops you going from the top of a building and so you can never get a job on wall street yep I'm sorry Matt you'll never get a job on wall street
1: <laughs> weirdly i'm I'm completely fine with like secured heights or roller coasters but like a diving board or something like that that I know is yep. pretty damn safe because you can jump off a di- I can fall off a diving board and I'll be fine I can yep. swim I can generally hit the water and that kind of shit terrified horrible
0: still you wouldn't do a high dive right like a 10 foot high dive with a
1: I would stand on the edge of that platform because a bit of my brain really wants to do it and I would stand up on that edge of that platform for about half a day (laughs) and never go off it
0: wow this is also the guy who can we tell burning man stories here or not (laughs) yeah uh. I just remember that time we we were over at that guy who had made this like mirrored box on bungee cords oh yeah and it has lights inside of it. Like every, all six walls are mirrors on the inside, and it has lights. And you get inside, and then you get shaken around, and in every direction, it's just like an infinite. You know, it's reflecting the reflection mm-hmm. and reflection. And he said, "Yeah, but just because uh, it's mirrors on all sides, you can't get it scratched. So people have to be naked." He's halfway through saying the word naked, and Matt's clothes are already <laughs> gone, and he's climbing inside of it. <laughs>
1: Good work. It was a, it was relatively low to the ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true.
0: I was impressed. Yeah. It was a mere.
1: It was yeah. It was it was well within climbing height.
0: Yeah. So if we had a naked diving board situation, it would it would
1: it would it wasn't we, the clothing aspect that would be right. scary.
0: I'm saying both of us would have felt. Yeah. I, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do the naked high dive because of the naked part, and you wouldn't do it because of the height. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
2: And so that then that's when it is interesting to look back at past experiences and think about well why is that a particular problem for you the heights thing whereas being naked is a particular. Issue oh, I mean, it's not you. that big of an <laughs> issue. It's just like, I mean, but why, why that would be? Like... <laughs> why that would make you anxious, but not mad? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So the treatment for OCD. So like the the cleaning ritual thing is probably the easiest one to explain. That if someone gets a feeling like they're dirty or contaminated in some way, then they'll wash their hands until they don't feel dirty or contaminated anymore right um and for people with the disorder part of it where it is a problem that's taking often hours in the day of cleaning to the point where their hands are kind of red and chapped and they're actually damaging themselves and it's
1: well beyond any part any sort of rationality where you can sort of sit them down with scientific textbooks and explain that there's no sign of the germs on their hands after yeah. minutes of hand washing
2: and by the time people are coming for treatment with me they already know that part of it so right. just telling them all oh, logically that your hands don't need washing that that's sort of a bit insulting because they actually are well aware of that yeah same but with a phobia course, where yeah. they, you
1: you know rationally that yeah. a balloon isn't gonna hurt
2: yeah you, and so then it's looking at what the actual problem is for them so is it just that they can't tolerate that feeling of um, that just discomfort is it that they're not very good at tolerating their emotions and unpleasant or uncomfortable experiences in their own bodies in which case you give them some skills to be able to do that or is it that they think that the, is there a sort of deeper belief to it so with OCD in particular is a huge sense of responsibility so I can't stand the possibility that I might have missed something on my hands and I then touch my baby and my baby gets sick and dies and I'll never get over that like that so that tiny tiny risk that that it's easier just to do the ritual to wash my hands again than to sit with that uncertainty of oh but there might be something that I've missed and that feeling of responsibility and feeling of Almost like preemptive guilt that i I could cause harm to somebody else,
1: so what would you do with a patient who had that feeling
2: so the the treatment then is is the same as sort of making them do it basically
0: um, but then, like just sit with you and not go do the thing they want to do
2: yeah, so work out if there 's anything that 's stopping them from doing that so like I said if they, if they can 't literally can 't tolerate that feeling, you need to sort of give them the tools to do that first, but then, yeah, just making them touch something dirty and then not wash their hands and they're sort of basically trying to prove to their body that nothing terrible happens when you do that but also that that feeling of discomfort does actually pass because every feeling that we've ever had is temporary so it will go away eventually Um, and teaching people that they don't have to respond to every thought and urge that goes through their mind and body. Which is the key thing with OCD is sort of believing that if I've had a thought, I have a responsibility to act on it. Right. So if I've had the thought that I could contaminate someone, just to be sure, I'd better do the ritual to make sure I don't cause any harm.
0: What about ones that are less... I mean, even though that isn't literally a thing that's correlated with fixing a problem, it's more connected than some rituals. What about one that's not even connected to anything... Like washing in in small doses is a positive. Yeah. This is taking it to an extreme. So, you mean something like
2: counting rituals or something that just doesn't have any
0: positive aspect to it at all? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's easier to make sense of the ones that do have a positive aspect. But in the way that they experience it, it's actually pretty similar. It's the feeling like if I don't do this thing, I will cause harm to somebody. So, a counting ritual might be that they've had a thought like they might have pictured someone getting hit by a car and then think okay now I have to do this little mental ritual to prevent that from happening they sort of this belief that their thoughts having the thought is the same as that thing happening or is morally equivalent to that thing happening or that it actually means that you want that thing to happen right and so then the ritual becomes a way of kind of neutralizing that feeling like so I, it, as long as i do my counting ritual or say a little prayer or do something to neutralize the thought then i'm not responsible if something bad does happen mm-hmm. to that person so that's much harder to work with because you don't have you can't like physically restrain somebody from counting in their head um so yeah it just, it takes a lot more work to actually get them to do that to intentionally think bad things and test that theory out. So I, I, as a therapist, I'll usually do it first. So I might say something like, I um, hope my baby gets chickenpox and then meet again the next week and they'll be sitting there nervously finding out whether me saying that out loud actually <laughs> gave my baby chicken pox. And yes. then I'll get them to say the same thing, like something about me. So it might be something mild, like I hope you get sunburned. And so they are like wishing some kind of ill on me to test the theory that, their thoughts can make things make things more likely to happen. If
1: mm-hmm. your baby did get chicken pox in that week, would you oh lie God, about would, it? I, do
2: you know what? I genuinely am terrified that that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more terrified for the sake of the patient than for the sake of my baby. Like, right. yeah. well, she'll be fine. But... If that did happen, yeah, that, well, that would just, be just just to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just gonna wash my hands just in case I've come yeah. into contact with an. And also, just and always after that, straight
1: after that session, counting prime numbers for exactly ten minutes, just to
2: reduce the possibility of that happening. But,
1: um, so, when it comes to serious anxieties or serious um, obsessive compulsive behaviours, obviously that's when you really need to. Like, I'm sure that's when you need to someone like you, a professional, to coax it through. But With milder anxiety disorders or less inhibiting ones, are there practices that people can use or look up or do themselves without having to go to a professional, without having to go through extensive therapy? There
2: there are some pretty good self-help CBT books out there now that kind of go through the basics. So if you're sort of experiencing it at a mild level and you just want to make some changes that aren't Hugely distressing to make, then CBT self-help books are pretty good for doing that.
1: But it sounds like because a lot of the treatment involves exposure and involves really having to. That sounds like almost where the professional becomes the most useful. That point at which you have to directly confront your biggest fear or challenge. And
2: yeah, yeah, and I think that that a lot of the people who come to have therapy, there's there's something else that's getting in the way that's stopping them from being able to do the treatment on their own like that you know everyone knows that if I've, if I've got a fear of heights then I just need to gradually expose myself to heights that's like a fairly intuitive thing to do to tackle mm-hmm. a fear but if what you're actually afraid of is I'll have a panic attack and embarrass myself at the top of this building and I I won't be able to get out because there's only one way down and everyone will be coming up the elevator but that's not obvious to the person that that's actually what they're afraid of all they know is that when they get into an elevator they feel anxious right um so when yeah when the fear looks like one thing but is actually probably something else that's when having a a therapist who knows what they're doing is pretty helpful
1: uh, is there also the issue that the the same way we talked at the beginning of this how depression is sort of self-defeating as also self-perpetuating mm-hmm does anxiety anxiety I imagine must have some of that as well, because if you're someone who suffers from some kind of anxiety disorder, even the process of engaging a therapist or contacting a therapist, particularly when you know in one part of your mind oh they're going to try and make me do the thing
2: yeah it's a pretty big deal to take that step, I think
1: that For- has to sort of be triggering all sorts of anxiety in itself and be-
2: yeah yeah, and being able to like address that with the person in the first session, like ask how they found it, making contact with someone, how they found me like i I do private practice as well so sort of just asking people how they found me and why they chose me as a therapist and did they have anything that they were nervous about about coming there that day that just being able to have that conversation to let them know that it's okay to talk about that stuff and that actually it's important to talk about that stuff and part of the, the process
1: do you find what do you find you sometimes have people come to you as patients and you're like you're we're not right for each other or i'm not the right person for you
2: definitely yeah Um, And that's one of the reasons for my private practice, why I have a website that I sort of feel has quite a bit of my personality in it. And I do the blog as well. So that people, I kind of send people to that first and just say, if this doesn't sit with you, I'm definitely not going to be the right therapist for you. And most of the people who found me have found me either through the blog or through my website and said, yep, I I like the way you talked about this. this. This is what I'm experiencing or this makes sense to me the way you talk about it. Right. So for my private practice, at least, it's, it's generally going to be a good fit because people with anxiety like to do research. <laughs> and so they've definitely found me uh, th- website, deliberately.
0: We've already plugged it once before, but uh, the URL again is?
2: Uh, CognitiveBehaviourself.com. Yeah, so that's the blog. And that, that basically came from m- me wanting to test these things out for myself so realizing that i was actually asking some of my patients to do some really awful uncomfortable things and i had no idea what the hurdles would be to doing that and um, also just sort of accepting that i didn't always know what i was doing as a therapist and so using the cbt techniques to explore that for myself so it basically started from us had a few patients i was treating for ptsd who part of the treatment is to listen to a tape of yourself telling the story so that you get used to hearing the story like a memory and used to the sort of the updated version of the story where you came out okay and all the things you thought weren't going to happen were going to happen at the moment in the moment didn't actually happen so part of the homework for them is to listen to that tape multiple times uh-huh. and I was getting lots of people just not doing it and I couldn't understand why they know it's going to help them get better they know it's a really important part of the treatment I couldn't work out why that was happening so I basically set myself some homework to watch some horror films which I had not watched since I was a teenager and was watching urban legends at a drive-in which was a terrible terrible idea so I had not watched any horror films for 15 years and so set myself the homework to watch all the films that i'd not watched so i watched the thing i watched the exorcist i watched silence of the lambs Uh and i did it with a heart rate monitor strapped on so that i could observe what happened at the tense moments and sort of watch my heart rate with that and then finally got to watching wolf creek which i don't know if you guys have seen it but Mm -hmm. it is horrific and
0: it's just the scariest of all the ones you just listed.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That was I like my, my <laughs> graduated exposure was to go up to Wolf Creek and that was like, okay, I found the thing that scares me. So that was like the equivalent of my trauma memory. So I watched it once with a heart rate monitor and then had set myself home. Like I was going to watch it again. And then the the spikes in the heart rate monitor is what we would call hot spots in trauma therapy. I was going to then watch those bits again. And I'd rented it on iTunes for a three day rental and I left it until it was like four hours before the end of the rental before I could watch it a second time. Wow, I just just kept putting it off. I was finding all sorts of excuses not to it I just didn 't want to feel awful again uh-huh. and then once i 'd watched it the second time, I was then much better able to watch to rewatch for the third time those parts that where i 'd had a spike in my heart rate because I knew that I could get through it a second time. But once I'd only watched it once, I didn't quite believe that I could get through it again. And so then I actually changed the way I did my treatment and I actually would get people to listen to the tape twice in the session with me there so that they had that same experience of having heard it a second time if they could get through it twice and maybe it was a little bit easier the second time then they would be much more likely to listen to it again because they sort of they know they're on a downward trajectory with their anxiety but if you leave them just feeling awful like why on earth would they do that to themselves again
1: that's great yeah it's a great bit of experimentation of self-experimentation
2: yeah it's like it really changed the way I did therapy and and it changed not just that particular aspect of doing trauma but the way I use those sorts of experiments to check things out for myself and to see what might come up for me or just even to know what it feels like to do something that makes me feel ashamed or embarrassed and just actually put myself through that, knowing that that's what I'm asking people to do.
1: What other experiments have you run?
2: Um, So for when I was working with people with, OCD contamination type stuff, so you, you often get them to sort of touch toilet bowls and uh-huh. um, like eat food after they've touched the toilet, that kind of thing. Um, so <laughs> Sorry. yeah,
0: well that should make you shudder a little bit, right? I mean. Yeah,
2: it's meant to be gross because <laughs> basically, if you can, it, it's sort of taking an anti-OCD stance. So if you can prove to yourself that you can do that, you're sort of telling the OCD that it's not in charge anymore. Look, you want me? OCD wants me to wash my hands um, after I've just pick something up off the floor all right well i'm gonna lick the floor now to sort of set the ocd back in its place Uh um and i would do that alongside my patients but i would kind of just yeah i'm doing this um but so then what i i thought i I need to do something that actually makes me uncomfortable it's it's not enough to do something that i know is perfectly safe right because then
1: you're like someone who isn't scared of snakes, telling someone who has a snake phobia, look, I'm touching the snake. Yeah, yeah, I'm
2: fine. Look, it's no big deal. Exactly. Yeah, so I was at a music festival, um, a music festival in the UK, which is incredibly muddy and disgusting, and licked the bottom of my uh, welly boot. You know, call them welly booties, do
0: I know they are, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah, so I'd been stomping around the portaloos and... Did then. you, like, in front of the whole crowd? Like, <laughs> <laughs> by, by the stage. privacy of my tent, thank okay. you very much. That is, that but I did that... get photographic evidence of oh, my God. tongue on the boot.
1: Wow, because that is something <clears throat> that is, I mean, that boot is genuinely, like, a doctor would say, don't lick that. So, like, yeah,
2: yeah. it's not, like, good practice to lick the bottom of your shoes, but if you lick the bottom of your shoes and you don't get sick, then that's going to change how you feel about just touching a, a surface that haven't, hasn't been sanitised or something like right. that. Right.
0: And I'm curious from the horror movie thing did that permanently change your tolerance level for horror movies or not really?
2: It made me realize that I'd been avoiding a lot of amazing films. Yeah. So I I I was sort of treating it like oh I can't deal with horror films and that's another part of avoidance is you start to avoid things that actually aren't a problem. And so when I watched Silence of the Lambs, I was like this is just a brilliant film. It's not it's not it's a bit tense right, but it's right. not scary. So that actually helped me to observe that in action, that avoidance of things just because you think it's going to be a problem. So now I'm much more likely to take a chance on a film. I won't avoid it just because I think it might be a bit tense or a bit scary. Right. I don't like actively choose to watch horror film
0: as my Did You, you got to seek it out, right? Did you seek it out? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Again, like that's the sort of thing that I wouldn't have seen in the past. But having done this, I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, I, I can. You yeah, can deal yeah. with that.
1: Um do these techniques also work with things like work avoidance? Because the dis- what you just described um a bit ago of leaving it to the very last minute before the iTunes rental ran out to watch yep. the film is exactly how I and I'm sure many people I respond to work I'm like, <laughs> oh like a minute before the deadline I'm gonna start and then have that experience of with work quite often, because I enjoy my work, but I don't enjoy starting it. Yeah. Like when I start a writing assignment, far Five hours later than I should have done. I'm like, oh, this is fun and enjoyable, and I could and have now done this I have five less hours. Time ago.
2: to do it, yeah, yeah. And I
1: could have done this five hours ago and then got out and had a drink with my friends. But now I'm now it's eight right. p.m. and I'm just starting.
2: Yeah, and I, I do have some people coming to see me specifically for procrastination and often to do with work or creative stuff. So what are the te-
1: uh, what are the sort of comparable techniques to deal with that kind of with that? Issue. So for
2: that, I sort of do it in, in like layers, like I look at which part of it is just bad habits, in which case bad habits, it's just about jolting yourself out of autopilot and, you know, instead of just doing things by habit, you're forcing yourself to think about what you're doing. So um, if if the first thing that you do is check facebook or whatever instead of sitting down to do work then it might be doing something like the night before you want to start working you put one of those blocks on all of those websites so that you or even just switching off the internet so that when you open up your computer there's something there that is different from how it would ordinarily be right and that just jolts you out of autopilot and back into sort of conscious thought and going oh yeah that's right last night what i wanted to do first thing this morning was get started on this work So that if it's just a habit, it's just about putting really obvious things in place to jolt you out of that habit as it's happening. Um, And for a lot of people, that's enough. It is just they're just stuck in particular habits. But with procrastination, it can also be like just really unhelpful beliefs about doing the work, like I'm not gonna. It's gonna be boring, or it's gonna be too difficult, or um, people like whoever. Reads it is going to judge me and think that I don't know what I'm doing, it's feeling like a fraud, that kind of uh-huh. thing. In which case, then it's really similar to the stuff we were talking about with the social anxiety stuff. Is just testing it out and saying, okay, well, let's let's see if that's true. Like sit down and do it for five minutes, and if you're finding it boring, then you will at least know that it is a boring task and you have to plan for that. But most people find that once they get started. Once you're engaged with something, it becomes interesting because you're doing it. That the motivation follows the action rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah, that's, that's usually true.
2: So that then is doing experiments, same same, which is a very CBT thing to do. And then you get to more sort of beliefs about yourself. Like, I can't do this. I'm not capable. Um, I'll never work out the problem. And um, then it's sort of a bit more of a cognitive element there of just saying, well, where do you want to get to? I I want to get this job or I want to do this amazing thing. And if I'm going to get there, I need to be able to do this so I may as well find out if I can do it and not letting the feeling that you might not be able to do it be the thing that stops you. Um, Which then takes you to the next level, which is if you can't tolerate that feeling of not being good enough or temporarily not knowing what you're doing, then you need to work on learning how to sort of cope with feeling bad about yourself or feeling a bit embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed and work on that instead. Okay. (laughs) And then just to add one final layer.
1: Keep on going.
2: If you're a serial procrastinator, then there might also be feeling guilty or ashamed of being a procrastinator like why do i always do this why do i always put this off to the last minute and that feels so bad that you then put off doing it because doing it reminds you that you haven't been doing it and makes you feel ashamed or guilty so what you're actually avoiding is feeling shit about yourself but it feels like you're avoiding the task
0: that all makes sense relate to all of these (laughs) things (laughs) this is a little too close to home yeah (laughs)
2: <laughs> so you've just got to find which layer is the biggest problem for you.
0: Oof. i got to listen back to this episode again. And yeah, particularly
1: is, that yes. last five. Just clip that <clears> and play it, play it on a loop until it no longer feels bad.
0: Yeah, but when you mentioned technology and how that can be a part of procrastination, when you were talking in the earlier part of the show about people's rituals to avoid feeling badly, whether it's anxiety or OCD, technically like... If it's social anxiety, are there a lot of cases where that's just like literally your phone? Like, do you think technology becomes like a big crutch? I think like, it's going to be a
2: bigger problem.
0: Yeah. You don't think it is right now? You don't I, see it I, right no,
2: I think it is already a problem, but I think it's going to get worse for people who have grown up with social media and not actually having as much face to face. Interaction no, with social, people.
0: Not even that, just like having an easy device that oh, you can right, Oh, right, an easy distraction. Oh, I see what you that's mean. Like, yep. This will make me feel better right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. Take this out so that then becomes the safety
2: behavior. Yeah. So you then don't, it, it just becomes the thing that makes you feel a little bit calmer, a little bit safer, a little bit more in control. Mm-hmm. And that's all fine if that's not getting in the way of doing what you want to do. But if you're going to events, getting out your phone, sitting there, and then just going home and not actually seeing people or talking to people and not really enjoying yourself and we know that feeling connected to other people is one of the most important things for mood and self-esteem. Um, so if you're not doing those things because of this safety behavior, then it is going to be a problem. Right. One of the things that I work on with people is just dealing with urges. And so often when you're in that situation, you'll get an urge to look at your phone. And sometimes people actually feel that quite physically, like the hand I definitely actually, feel that, yeah. Like- yeah. Um, and so working with like doing that with your phone across the other side of the room and focusing on work or doing something that you would rather be doing than checking your phone and then notice the urge and just kind of sit with that feeling and just go oh that's my body telling me I want to check my phone but what I've already decided is I want to be doing this piece of work instead or I want to go and talk to these people instead and just letting the urge roll past instead of engaging with it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great way of thinking. You just sit with that urge and let it roll past.
2: Yeah, and it does pass. Yep. It's the same, you know, that if you're if you're out and about and you suddenly get a pang of hunger, it's the same thing. Like if you don't eat straight away, that feeling of hang- hunger will pass until you're abs until you're desperately hungry, and then it gets more and more persistent. So if it's something that you actually need, it will become more persistent over time. But if it's not something that you actually need in that moment, that urge will actually just roll on through.
0: I will try that soon. Yep. Well, <laughs> Maybe well, even well, tonight at trivia. One <laughs> yeah.
1: of the things I really liked at Burning Man was not having any technology or access to technology for a full week.
2: Yeah, and you notice it pretty quickly once once you don't have access to it.
1: It it passes. It did. The the only thing that I was hoping to get and didn't was I I was hoping that that would be a feeling that would. Persist beyond that week, <laughs> but it almost ins- yeah, like I was. I was like
0: an addict. So yeah, I was like yeah, an was-
1: addict. Just convi- like as we were driving out and regaining connectivity, I was like an addict. Just try. Like I was like a, an ex-smoker, convincing myself I yeah. could just have one cigarette, and within a day, I was buying a packet.
2: And that's because yeah. the feeling of relief is a really powerful reinforcer. So anything that takes away an uncomfortable feeling, and urges are meant to feel a bit uncomfortable because you're meant to relieve them. Right. So doing something to relieve that urge, so eating when you're hungry, checking your phone when you've got an urge to look at it, you get a temporary feeling of relief and that feeling is so good, like more than if you add a positive feeling, if you take away an uncomfortable feeling, that's the behavior you're going to keep doing. So as soon as you check your phone once you get out, unless you make a conscious effort to say, all right, I'm going to keep my phone switched off so that every time I get that urge, I I have to turn my phone on to look at it. Yeah. Then... It's just going to come back.
1: Yeah, I think I sort of managed to tell myself, just starting to process what that feeling even was, just I told myself, I told everyone that I wasn't going to be contactable for a week or anyone important, and I told myself, well, I'm not going to have the phone for a week, but then the second I left, all that feeling of, what if I'm missing something? What if something important is coming through? I'm like, which, rationally, is obviously bullshit, because if well, I'd
0: managed... possible uh, things. There are but possible but things,
1: absolutely, but if I'd managed <laughs> to be fine... On Friday, with the idea that well, if someone's messaging me something important, I'm not going to see it till Monday. That's a, yeah, a full three days later. That yeah. I was fine with that, but not. But then on Monday, Once I was like, the "Well, option. now it's Monday, and that's the day that I'm getting all my messages." And I yeah, I definitely at that point had to have my phone turned back on and watch all the messages ticking back in. Right.
2: And that um, what you described about telling people that you would be uncontactable that yes. would be like a safety behavior because basically your when you come out of that if you're treating that as an experiment you come out of that you believe that the only reason it wasn't a disaster is because everyone knew you were going to be away so if you were doing that as a CBT experiment you say okay I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm not going to be contactable I'm still not going to check my phone for a couple of days and then see what happens. See if it's a disaster. Even
1: meant even saying that to me right now, I just got like a, like <laughs> like a what if my stomach a, just went. Uh, I just yeah. got a lurch in my stomach just is at it, the idea that,
0: that someone's s- going
1: to someone would send me a message and I wouldn't answer it for two days or would. Yeah.
2: And, I and if th- you have a job that requires you to respond immediately, then obviously that's not gonna be realistic but also or practical. It regularly isn't.
1: There are messages. <laughs> right. There are work messages that I won't respond to for two days that I that I see it that like I'll see a message and then not respond for two days. <laughs> but it's more the unknown <laughs> message.
2: Yeah. And we're much more afraid of the unknown than than the known. Right. There was a really cool study about that that they did with getting people to look at rocks and they measured their fear levels and they said either there's definitely a snake under that rock or there's definitely not a snake under that rock or there might be a snake under that rock and the people who knew there was going to be a snake were less scared than the people who didn't know whether there was going to be a snake under there of course even though there was guaranteed danger it's the uncertainty that we're so uncomfortable with
1: that's really that makes so much sense from a gut from a sort of emotional core point of view and so much not sense from a logical But we we, we crave
2: certainty, so we, we want to know what's happening and we deal much better with the facts once we know what the situation is. And one of the things I always say to my patients is, if you're walking down the street and someone said, don't go that way, there's something awful around that corner and that was it and walked away, you'd probably just go a different way. But if someone said... There's a disgusting, decapitated bird around the corner. You could then make a decision about whether that was disgusting enough to take a detour. Right. And we're, we're much better. Isn't
1: we- there a part of mo- a lot of us who would, if they said there's something unknown around the corner, who would what then go, What is it? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it? I thought
0: you were going to say that that's the implication or the inclination you'd have. I think I'd want to go around that corner if someone's like, Don't go on there's something <laughs> awful. Yeah. Is that weird? I don't know.
2: (laughs) Let's not turn this into therapy. (laughs) I have opinions. I'm just not going to share them. (laughs) Yeah, and people who have a tendency towards anxiety are going to be much more afraid of that uncertainty. And that's actually one of the things that they might work on in therapy is just doing things where they're not sure of the outcome and just learning to cope with that feeling Mm -hmm. and again writing it out in the same way that you would write out an urge or write out anxiety and just learning to feel uncomfortable and know that in order to have the bigger things in life that you want it involves an element of uncertainty so being more vulnerable in a relationship actually makes you feel more connected to people and taking risks with work is actually how you get better jobs and more interesting work but if you're scared of uncertainty you're not going to do those things and you'll feel better in that moment that you're not doing it but longer term it compromises sort of that feeling of fulfillment and connection with people
1: that seems like a really good point to leave it yeah it's
0: a lot to think about
1: i do because like i feel of, like we could also spend another two hours throwing questions yeah. at you about like what
0: about this thing that i've had
1: and then it really will become therapy but uh we
0: did, we did kind of trick you into doing work for us we appreciate that i think everyone got some free therapy today um uh,
1: where can our listeners find out more about you and everything you do?
2: Uh, so they can find my blog on com. They can find my private practice on thisiscbt.com.
1: Cool. And are you on Twitter or Facebook? or?
2: Um, I am technically on Twitter in that I have an account, but um, I haven't posted there for a really long time. That's so it's not a good place to find me.
1: Fair enough. Go to those websites. Yeah. You can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com mm-hmm. and also on Twitter at probablyscience.com. And individually at Andy T Wood and at Matt Kirschen. Yep. Uh, do we have anything to plug?
0: Anything? Um, I got some shows around
1: LA coming up, and I'll tweet about those. Oh, yeah. but other than that,
0: I have one on July seventeenth, but I'll, I'll give the details uh, on a future episode. But uh, while the Jim Jeffrey show is going on, I'm
1: pretty much stuck in Los Angeles. Yeah. So come and see me there, or tune into that and see can, see if you can work out which jokes are mine.
0: Yeah, actually, can can listeners? I, how are they filling the audience seats? Is there a way listeners could try to get in the oh, studio yeah, audience? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Or? There's, there's still the, the tickets are free, so I can't remember exactly what the address is. But I'm if you Google Jim Jeffrey show audience tickets, it'll be the first thing that comes up. You'll find it. There's a
0: Tuesdays what, at around one.
1: Yeah, I think noon is when you have to show up. So anyone okay. in the Los Angeles area or who can travel there with relative ease, if you want to see that show, and if there's a specific you know what listeners if there's a specific show that you're trying to get to and it already says it's sold out and you're in LA and you're like this is the only day i'm going to be in los angeles uh send us an email probably signs at gmail.com and yeah. i'll see if i can it's very nice of you skip the line nice but yeah check out thank you so much for joining us yeah, this that has was been great. awesome you're welcome. thanks for having me yeah
0: we'll see you next week we will do